Earlier this year, the word looked on in shock as a consortium of the world's biggest football clubs, including six of England's richest teams, attempted an aggressive and ill-advised coup of the world's most popular sport. The proposed European Super League gave all football fans a deep sense of unease. What had been known for decades, but perhaps not truly acknowledged until now, was that football at the highest level had become little more than a plaything for the planet's wealthiest men. With that has come greater and greater polarisation between the rich and the poor, a disconnect between fans and the players they adore, and a desire to maximise profits above all else. I'm sure I'm not alone when I say the proposed Super League was met by little more than a shrug in my house. In all honesty, I was happy that the cat was finally out of the bag. Take your ball and sod off, I thought. My allegiances with football have always been less about the sport and more about everything good that comes with it. The friendship, the camaraderie, the sense of unconditional inclusion. Now, it would of course be disingenuous of me to suggest that I, as a white heterosexual man in my mid-twenties, has ever had to truly deal with exclusion in any real-world sense. It would also be naive of me to suggest that football has always been a place where everyone feels welcome. Far from it. But I firmly believe that football, more so than anywhere else, has the power to enact social movements that encourage better inclusion for all. With that in mind, I introduce you to the Football Without Everyone Is Nothing series, brought to you in association with Man Markin. Every day this week, I'll be speaking to different individuals and organisations, all of whom have used football as a vehicle to improve social inclusion. As we all well know, social inclusion is a key component of improving our collective mental health. So that will be a crucial part of our focus as well. Today in episode number six, we'll be speaking to Owen Coyle Jr. from the England Amputee Football Association. If you'd like to get involved this week, you can, of course, find us on Twitter. Our handle is at marking underscore man. And don't forget to use the hashtag football without everyone is nothing. I'll now hand you over to Owen and I'll see you very briefly on the other side. Yeah, of course, no problem at all. So my name's Owen Coyle Jr. I'm the head coach for the England Amputee Football Association. And first put a call for us, Owen, then how did you first get into coaching? So I first became involved in coaching when I was 16 years old. I'd left high school, uh, like many uh, young persons, uh, wanted to be a professional footballer. Came to the realisation that I wasn't going to be good enough, uh, which I was comfortable with. That wasn't a problem at all. But what I did want to do is continually be involved in the game of football. It's what I've always been brought up around uh, within that environment in different ways, shapes and forms. Uh, so at 16, I, I decided that I wanted to go into coaching, not really fully understanding at that time what that looked like and, and how it would develop. Um, I think in my head, I always just thought I want to be the best at what I do uh, within the game. I appreciate that I had a long journey to go until then. So at 16, I started, uh, I got an apprenticeship at Lancashire Football Association. Whilst I was there, I was doing development work, so development of grassroots teams, the development of leagues, for example, um, and also getting a little bit of coaching opportunity on the side, working with uh, disability groups, working with uh, female teams, um, and also working with mainstream teams, both men and boys. Uh, and from there, I was very fortunately introduced uh, to Peter Wilde, who's now the head coach of Halifax Town in the National League. Um, and Pete really supported my development and helped harness my, my coaching skills, uh, gave me many opportunities, which I'm sure we'll go into very soon around the England Amity Football Association um, and from there my, my journey just continued to develop and uh, over time I would like to think I've improved a little bit along the way. Absolutely and you know, one thing I wanted to ask you Owen which which uh, is this kind of a, a kind of personal sort of thing with this as well is so at the, the company that I work for and have worked for since since I left uni so 
seven i think it's seven years this month that i started working for it for the company was used to be part owned by my mom so my mom owns half of the company until earlier this year so i've worked for a long time with my mom and in this uh, environment she's in especially locally she's very well known and very well respected and I, and i wondered how for you as someone who's you know whose dad was you know has been in football for a long time is well known well respected how did you kind of overcome the, the sort of stigma that maybe comes with that you know the idea of nepotism and and that type of thing that can can sort of be attached to people in your position yeah, no, most definitely. I don't think it probably helps that I'm having the, having the same name as him, first and foremost. <laughs> That's probably the biggest challenge. But no, from, from a young age, I've, I've always looked up to my dad like, like any, any young man does um, and also uh, had opportunities with him from a young age and going experiencing some of these uh, top teams that you worked for at the time and being behind the scenes and seeing it all develop and transpire. So from, from that young age, I always kind of grasped on to the fact that I wanted to make my own name within the game um, even though it was the same name make a name for myself off my own right uh, which probably takes me a little bit into the path that I'm now in and why to some degree I've, I've gone down that path um, long term I do have aspirations to go into the mainstream game um, in whatever capacity that may be uh, but yeah just for, from an early age I was always determined to say you know what my, my father's been very very successful at what he's done um, he's certainly a role model to me but if anything, I think you'd probably be prouder of me if I was to go above and beyond what he managed to achieve in the game, which would be uh, for myself phenomenal if I ever got to anywhere near that level, if I'm being honest. And you'll probably tell early doors, I, I certainly back myself. I'm, I'm confident that one day I'll be able to do that, um, although it may be in, in the future. So, yeah, from, from that young age, I'd, I'd seen the experience that he's had. Um, I've experienced his, his triumphs, his successes. I've experienced the other side of the game. So I know what it's all about on the, the sharp end of the stick, which he's probably had on many occasions occasions as well more recently than than then um, and yeah just it kind of drove me on to go you know what I am going to make my own name for myself and um, I probably feel like I've done that to a certain level at the moment although I want to um, really elevate that in the coming years and um, in terms of stigma and people's perception of me it, it doesn't really bother me um, I, I am who I am I'm my own person anybody that gets to know me and knows I'm my own person my own ideas me and my old man speak regularly about the game of football. Sometimes we agree with each other, sometimes we don't. And that's that's a good relationship to have, I think. Um, so I'm certainly not a clone or a copy. I, I do things um, maybe slightly differently in some ways to him, although certainly with a hint of of, of what I really think of is, is a value that he does, which is a lot of things within his coaching. I think disagreeing with your dad about football is like kind of rule number one, isn't it? Like yeah. he just should not agree. Like my, me and my dad had this long run-in kind of disagreement about Shane Long where I always really rated Shane Long and my dad just never really rated him. So every time Shane Long would score, I'd have to text him and say, you're the lad who you don't rate scored again today, you know? And then do you remember he scored that goal against Germany for the yeah, Island? Oh, I had an absolute field day. <laughs> <laughs> no, very much so. No, listen, he's, he's very, very wise. He's got a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge, but as you said, even the, the, some of the simplest and most basic things, there's, there's always a little bit of confrontation or disagreement there. And he'll tell you if you spoke to him that I'm, I'm miles off it, but that, that's fun. The fun and games are what we do. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Absolutely. And, and, and as you kind of alluded to, Owen, we're, we're obviously here to discuss your your role as the manager of, of the England amputee football team. Could you explain to anyone who's listening who, who doesn't know what the amputee football team is? Could you kind of give them a bit of an explainer of it? Yeah, of course. So the, the England Amity Football Association, first of all, is a charity um, that was formed in 1990, uh, so well before my time. 
Um, but the team itself is, is developed over a number of years. Um, the team, the England national team, aren't supported by the Football Association or any other national governing body. So that's why we do sit underneath a, a charitable um, badge in the England Amity Football Association banner. Um, although we are a charitable team, everything we do is a professional standing. Uh, so we've got 20 staff. We'll get 13 players currently building towards the European Championships. And the sport of amputee football itself is played for those who have lost a limb um, or have a limb deficiency, whether that be upper body or lower body. And it's given the opportunity for amputees to play football. Uh, the charity itself gives opportunities from grassroots level all the way through to international level where, where I work and also have a, a, a role within the charity day-to-day -day operationally uh, with a number of my other colleagues um, in delivering some of these other provisions for, for the junior players or younger players all the way from four years old up to 16, uh, where we've seen a lot of players transition and make the progression into the national team, which has been a, an outstanding uh, piece of work from everybody involved in the charity to, to our league sides as well, um, where again, we, we go and cherry pick the best players um, to to then play for the national team within a league system and then obviously the awareness piece around that of, of going on to things like podcasts, going into schools, going into educations, organisations and making them aware of the sport. So if anybody's not seen amputee football before, I would recommend that you check, you check it out, YouTube, internet, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, whatever it is people operate on. If you type amputee football on, you'll certainly see lots of fascinating clips of the game being played and for the first time you watch it, it's very fascinating, uh, very fast-paced probably catch you a little bit by surprise how technically um, and physically the gifted the players are and very fortunate that I get to work with them regularly and see also the, the technical side of and um, the tactical side sorry of, of how gifted they are too and um, along with them as pe people first and foremost being fantastic individuals and role models. I, do you know what I was I was going to ask you when actually you mentioned it right at the top about because I wondered why the team sat below the the EAFA and, and what because normally with any like England sides, they normally have an affiliated with the FA thing. Is there a reason why there's no affiliation with the FA? Is that something that's been sought after, or is it just not transpired that way? The, the FA actually supported the team um, from 2000s up until 2007, approximately around that period. Um, prior to that, and before the charity was actually set up, the England national team was, was a team in itself. Um, in the late 80s and they won the World Cup three times uh, before any FA involvement or before the actual charity then formed. Um, but long story short, between 2000 and 2007, the FA supported Amputee Football as one of the first disability teams uh, that they did help out with. Um, in 2007, they dropped the support for the team. Three reasons. One, not being part of the Paralympics, uh, which is obviously outside of the country's control. That's a wider world uh, governing body challenge. Uh, the second was due to low participation rates. And the third one, which aligns to that, was also not having a structured league system. And uh, now since then, uh, the league system's obviously flourished and we've got eight teams that are all linked to professional football clubs. Manchester City have a team, Arsenal, Everton, uh, Brighton Hove Albion, uh, Newcastle United, West Bromwich Albion, Peterborough United, uh, Portsmouth FC. So uh, I'd probably get in trouble if I forgot any of the names. <laughs> I'll go through them all. Um, but then in addition to that as well, um, our league season runs uh, regularly throughout a, a normal calendar year. The Paralympic uh, goal is still there for the World Amity Football Federation. Um, but as you can appreciate that, that's 
all around continental development um, and the sport developing in different areas of the globe rather than just here in England. So it's not something we're in actual control of, um, although we can obviously play a small part towards that. So um, again, without rambling on, the, the FA um, came to us and asked for a um, conversation around two years ago, uh, which we were open to around falling under the banner um, without uh, bad-mouthing or speaking out of tongue that the offer just wasn't anywhere near acceptable for the programme we were delivering. We actually felt it had been a regression rather than a progression for the players. Um, and yes, there was some real good um, perks of going under the FA banner, um, but ultimately the, the, the way the programme's been built up, and if anybody looks on social media, you can see that the level of professionalism that we've got as a team. Uh, as I said, the amount of staff we've got, we've got uh, tactical um, and technical teams from analysis to qualify UEFA and be licensed coaches. We've got media support staff and um, we'll deliver player liaison support. Uh, we deliver uh, professional photography and um, videography. We've got performance psychologists. We've got physiotherapies, doctors, um, you name it. We've got everything there in abundance uh, in the players probably couldn't be any more looked after than they are with people that, that truly care about what they do because all the staff, despite having all that experience, are completely voluntary. So nobody gets paid, players or staff, any expenses or any money for what they do. So everybody's involved in it because they passionately care about the sport and the team and the players. Um, so we actually put it to the players around, do they want to go under the FA banner based on the, the very short and small proposal we received from the FA or do they feel appropriate that we continue? And we actually work with the wider amputee football community as well. Some of the players that aren't involved in England set up to ask their opinions on it and it was a very resounding no we prefer to continue with what we're doing which speaks volumes of the programme that's in place and it's something that I was surprised with um, but for example we've just signed off a three year contract with Adidas um, who are supporting us and backing us as well so um, we're very very proud of how far as a team and a charity we've come over the years um, and despite not falling under the FA banner um, it's something that doesn't hold us back uh, once upon a time I think it maybe did um, we don't have any bad blood with the FA we've got still a good relationship I speak to many of the members of staff within the disability department and still lean on their expertise and experience every now and again despite them, uh, depending on different situations and circumstances which are but at the same time we are our own entity and we believe we're our own uh, national government body in, in, in relation to looking after the sport of amputee football in this country. Yeah, I, I think that's probably, I mean, that you, you alluded to the sort of the you know the level of professionalism that you that, that you guys have, and, and that was one of the things that kind of struck me from looking through Twitter and the and stuff other stuff online, and as you're saying, videos on YouTube and that type of thing was you wouldn't be able to distinguish it from like a professional football club, like a professional football team, that it looks the same in terms of the 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 sort of front facing output and output and stuff. And I think that's that's incredibly impressive to be able to do, as you've just mentioned there, given everybody involved is doing it on a voluntary basis. And and, and kind of on that then, Owen, in terms of the players that 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 are playing for the amputee team, what are their backgrounds? Where do you kind of you know source players from and how does that whole process work? Yeah, so it's, it's very similar to the mainstream game. So we've got our eight domestic league clubs that, that I named earlier. Those teams will play once or twice a month. Um, and then my role as part of my remit as head coach is to go out and watch those games and, and select the best players uh, within the league system domestically to come and represent the, the national team. Um, and that's on a year by year, year by year basis. It's on a, a tournament by tournament basis as well. So the best players that, that we feel are are performing at their optimum are the players that then get the opportunity to represent the country. Uh, regarding the players' backgrounds individually, they've all been through different experiences. Some of them are amputees through birth. 
um, and, and birth defects. Uh, some of them have lost a limb through, through road traffic accidents, through teenage cancers, uh, through um, major incidents or injuries that have arisen through um, different, again, scenarios which you can probably um, imagine yourself, some quite traumatic. Um, so there's such a widespread range of individuals within the squad um, in terms of what their background story is and the one uh, common thing that brings everybody together is, is, is football, as cliche as that sounds. Yeah, 100%. And, and I think that's, you know, that, that, that that's kind of, in, in a way, is is sort of what this whole series that we're doing this week is is kind of all about. And, you know, you mentioned it at the top, and obviously through your dad and through the, the, the work that you've done it since a teenager, you've been around football in sort of one guise or another for the majority of your life. And, you know, it, I think as most people are kind of becoming more aware of that it can be a very unforgiving cutthroat environment football and has working with the England amputee team kind of changed your your attitude or your perspective on what on what football can be and what it can kind of represent for people uh, to, to, to a degree absolutely I think the biggest thing uh, with the with the team and the charity that's been able to build that personal relationship and work with individuals and see that individual progression and and be there for people again when when they're at the most vulnerable and even the lockdown that we've had over the last year for, for our players has been so incredibly tough and don't get me wrong I know it's been tough for everybody in different ways shapes and forms but these gentlemen are preparing for a major tournament the biggest tournament in their life and have been stuck indoors have been unable to train while countries like Turkey who are professional Poland who are professional Russia who are professional have been out training every day and they're seeing that and, and they can't do much about it apart from do what they can to, to make sure they can maintain and be in a position when the world opened back up to get back out and make sure that it didn't fall short. So there's been lots of personal individual challenges there and that personal relationship that I've got with all the players, um, I believe, and the staff is, is very, very strong. Um, I know if I needed anything from them and actually had a bit of a, a personal challenge in the last week and pretty much every single one of the players and staff reached out to me at some point to ask, one, how I was doing um, and two, if there was anything they could do to help me and, and things like that go a long, long way to, to understanding what football's truly about um, and that team identity identity and social identities is very, very powerful when you start to look at it that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, you know, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head there, Owen. I think for a lot of people throughout the kind of lockdown period, particularly, it's probably given them maybe a bit of a chance to evaluate the things that they do and they don't want in their life because they, they've had them removed from them almost overnight, which nobody's obviously ever gone through before. And I think football, for a lot of football fans, maybe people took it for granted all those additional things that you talk about in terms of like the kinship and the friendship and the you know bringing people together and and as I sort of mentioned you know obviously that's what this series of episodes about you know limiting social isolation improving self-esteem and that type of thing I suppose then for organizations like the England Amputee Football Association how important is it for them to exist and, and to be able to provide that outlet and that opportunity because presumably for people who were playing in, in, in that team and for the other teams as well, you know, we talk about Man City and Portsmouth and Peterborough and the rest of them. Presumably they wouldn't have the opportunity to play football otherwise. Yeah, no, 100%. And I think without going back and speaking about 
um, the past and in, in detail. But in 20, uh, 2007, sorry, when, when the FA did drop the support for the team, there, there wasn't any grassroots provision in place and all of a sudden there wasn't a national team in place. So that opportunity had been removed from people, which is is incredible to think that that was the case. Um, and Dave Tweed, who is now the England captain um, and, and one of the longest serving players and is a phenomenal athlete in his own right, but, but picked that up with Steve Johnson, who's an ex-World Cup winner for the side, and both of them to, to get the charity back up and running and and, and kind of re-emerge again and, and go again at developing the grassroots provision all the way through to the national team. So without the charity existing, opportunities wouldn't be available. Without opportunities not being available to people, what would that mean? And, and go back to it, it would mean a social, social isolation um, and it certainly would mean many of these um, athletes that we've got and, and players who aren't part of the national team some of the younger players in the, the junior program they wouldn't have the social interaction with people who are similar to themselves in regards to the to their disability and um, but also have a real common uh, interest within the sport that they love as well so when you bring those two things together um, and, and realize what they've got in common so strong it's, it's a very very powerful yeah, absolutely. When is um, when's your when when are you when's the next match? Oh, and when what you know? How does the 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 fixture list work in terms of what you're kind of preparing for at the moment? So at the moment, it's really really tough because again, um, because the travel corridors has been a challenge getting away to tournaments and fixtures. Uh, so we did had planned to go to a tournament in June over in Warsaw in Poland, um, but obviously as Poland currently sits on the amber list, there's no way of us getting out there because again, all the players and staff hold down full time jobs or businesses, so the isolation of that would be a challenge. Uh, so we're in the process of looking forward to July and August, potentially bringing some of the more professional sides across, and um, if they're able to. To, uh, get clarity and get clearance on um, them being an, an elite team and getting exemption to travel in time to play. Uh, but thereafter, we'll be heading to the European Championships, fingers and toes crossed, um, in September, uh, the second week in September. And that's in Krakow in Poland that we're building towards. In 2017, we went to the European Championships in Istanbul and Turkey. Uh, we finished second. Unfortunately, in the last minute, if, if you, again, if you've not been on YouTube, if you type in Paul, uh, Turkey versus England European Championship final, um, you'll see it in front of 42,000 fans at Besiktas Stadium in uh, Vodafone Park, which was an incredible experience. And we lost 2-1 in the last minute, which was a tough one to take. Uh, so this year, we're building back up towards the European Championships after a delay. It was meant to be last year, but cancelled with COVID. Um, so again, further down the line with it now and it's looking positive that it's going to happen and take place and, and yeah building towards that with real momentum and real belief we can go and uh, surprise and, and against the odds again go on and win it yeah that 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 um match that you talked about from from 2017 i've seen the the, the videos from that i, I was I, again I, you, you kind of mentioned i was astounded by it just the volume of the of, of the crowd it was incredible like what like what an amazing occasion and i suppose for this year as well in september going going out to, to krakow it's an, like an amazing kind of location to go for a tournament as well isn't it it's a really nice sort of part of the world and you know, plenty to do and all the rest of it and i suppose for people back home if they want to watch those games i presume they're available like they could stream them they're online or on youtube that type of thing yeah, definitely. So if you, if you, this, this isn't a shameless plug, I promise, but if you follow the Grampy Football Association, um, particularly on Facebook, um, but on, on any of the, 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 the social media uh, pages, as I said, I think we're even on TikTok now. You won't see me dancing, that's for sure. 
Um, but we're across all the platforms. And if you follow us on there, you'll see when the games are coming up and they often are live streamed on, on a Facebook page, particularly, uh, where you'll be able to watch the games and hopefully get, get behind us and support us. And who knows if the world does open back up, it'd be nice to have a few um, English faces over there supporting the team if we were to make it to the final. Yeah, absolutely. That, that was going to be my next question, Owen, in terms of when the domestic league is up and running. Is it where, you know, can, uh, presumably supporters can go in and watch when, you know, social distancing allows for it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, at, at the moment, again, the, the league provision, it's not played in any glamorous stadiums of salt. So we've actually got our own um, England training base at Reese's College and that, which, um, which again, you'll be able to see in all the pictures. We've got all our own branding and things like that up around it. It's a lovely facility um, in Reese's College. Um, support us heavily as well as Adidas, I mentioned, and Simple Business, who are our main sponsors. Um, but outside of that, the, the teams train and play locally. Um, so both training and, and playing, they usually just train at school or college facilities or community. Uh, community facilities where possible and uh, the hope to continue to develop it is of course one day we'd love to be in stadiums watching games of amputee football um, as you'll see in that, that game in Turkey it's obviously done professionally and they are one of the, the countries along with Poland and Russia and in, in Europe that they, they do have that professional status so they, they have the resources to, to put events like that on and we'll certainly as a, a small charity continue to aim and, and work towards something of that calibre in the future um, but in short if anybody wants to watch the games or go and see the league action anybody's more than welcome again it's publicised through our all, all social media channels and all the club teams have their own uh, social pages as well if you want to give them a follow but it would be nice to one day to see probably not just amputee football but disability football as a whole start to progress and I always use this comparison that um, it reminds me very similar to, to the female game probably back in 2011-2012 where some people knew about it, those who knew about it took part in it and, and really enjoyed it um, but the wider uh, I suppose world didn't maybe see as much value in it um, as what they do now um, it would be lovely to see disability sports in 10, 15 years' time, progress the way the women's game has and, and get the, the credit it deserves. Yeah, do you know what? That was kind of, that was where my mind was going to a degree as well because I, I did one of these episodes very recently and I was talking about how um, I remember going to an F, a women's FA Cup final at uh, the Diva Stadium in Chester. Um, Arsenal winning, I can't remember who the other team were. I think Arsenal won 2-1. And I just remember at, at the time thinking like, why is the FA Cup final in the Diva Stadium in Chester? But I was quite young at the time. But now, as you say, the, the FA Cup final, the women's FA Cup final is at Wembley in front of, I think the, the, the before lockdown, before COVID, there was 90,000 there, I think, wasn't there? So I think, as you say, there is that there is an, a, an example for the for, for you guys, obviously, to, to, to follow and hopefully emulate. And, you know, the Invictus Games, I think, in 2014 kind of helped to raise the profile of, of amputee sports. Do you... Do you kind of see trying to move towards that mainstream the way that, that that you would like the sport to go? And how do you kind of see your role playing a part in that? Yeah, 100%. Again, one day in, in the future, whenever that may be, I've got no doubt I will eventually progress myself um, into a different aspect of football um, and probably not be actively as the head coach of the national team. But what I would say is I'll always have a role within the charity. Um, it's something I'm very passionate about and it's something that I, I do see myself always being involved in. Um, so I'll, I'll play any part I can to, to progress it naturally to get to that level. The biggest thing is resources. 
Um, again, we're very fortunate without um, keep mentioning Adidas, but because Adidas have become on board, they've started to um, probably shed the light on the sport a little bit more. And if more organisations of that size and stature can get behind the charity and other disability football teams and disability sport um, generally, I must say, um, then I think that's the way for it to progress and improve. And it's getting there step by step and um, resources, funding, um, full-time members of staff, you know yourself, it's the pulling power that, that makes all that happen. It's not going to happen with four or five volunteers continuing driving and pushing it, no matter how passionate we are. So there's certain uh, strategic planning and, and delivery that needs to be be done over a long period of time. We've got a vision of where we'd like it to go. Um, and again, making small inroads to try and make that happen. Yeah, 100%, mate, 100%. And I think it's, you know, I think possibly to a degree, you know, everything that happened quite recently with the the Super League and, and, and some of the other things going on with the, with football at the at the very top level. I do think there is an appetite from from football fans to maybe reconnect with football on that more humanistic level. And and so for you know for 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 sports like amputee football and and the same for for, for any of the other sort of smaller football sports in in this country, I think there's an opportunity there for people to pick up supports to maybe become a little bit disillusioned with with the kind of mainstream football game. So hopefully yeah, no, that'll be and, and I think as well, at uh, no point do we believe we're ever going to overpower the mainstream game or even the female game. We're, we're aware of, of what we are and who we are. Um, but what I would like in the future is one for, for the players to be recognised for the talents within a paid role one day in the future. Uh, how close that is, no one knows. Um, but that, first of all, would be nice. And then secondly, in addition to that, is just have the recognition for who they are. I mean, when we were in Turkey for the final, we went to the airport the next day. The lads were getting asked for autographs. We were getting asked for pictures. People were treating them like superstars because they'd been all over national TV. You fly back the other side to Manchester and, and nobody has a clue who they are or what they've done. So just even that recognition of actually you, your athletes in your own right, you've got your own successes and congratulations for that. I think that's the bare minimum that, that everybody could do to, to start to educate themselves and be aware of what the sport is, who's involved in, in what they're doing. You don't you don't need to sit there and watch every game. You don't need to be a fanatic fan or supporter. Um, but I think if it was to get to that point for, for all disability sport um, and amputee football involved in that, that would, that would be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's incredibly well put, Owen. And the last question I had for you, and this is kind of unrelated, obviously you're the manager of the England team, but I think your accent's a little bit of a giveaway that you're not actually from England. Um, and we, we, we record this this episode in the in the sort of weeks leading up to the Euros in which there is obviously a big England-Scotland match coming up. What are your what are your kind of thoughts? What are your predictions for, for that game, Owen? Well, strangely enough, um, and this is where I've become really, really complex, my old man played for Republic of Ireland, um, so my, my actual loyalties lie on international football with the Republic of Ireland, because that's where a lot of my family heritage is from, so that, that just throws everything completely out of the water a little bit, um, but that said, I'll be watching the, the England-Scotland game with real intent. Uh, funnily, you should say I've got a real good group of friends down here, four or five pals down in England, um, and the same up in, up the road in, in Scotland. Um, and actually, the Glasgow uh, group are coming down to watch the final together with English boys. So it should be a, a good laugh, certainly, if nothing else. I know, I know which way I think it's going to go, which should be interesting. Um, and I do think like, England will probably come out on the, the other side of it. I just think we'll get a little bit too much quality with the likes of Phil Foden, who I think is phenomenal. Um, but some of the other players have got a, a fantastic 
um, elite professional footballers ultimately working at the, the top, top level of the game. That said, Scotland, I do think, have improved um, over periods of time, and I think they'll continue to improve. They've got a young squad, they've got some young, talented players as well playing in, in the Premier League. You like some Tomney, McGinn, uh, Robertson, Tierney, so, some good players. I just think as an overall team and package, England maybe just have a little bit too much for them. That said, I think Scotland will give themselves a good account of themselves throughout the tournament, and particularly in that game. Yeah, I think I think you're about. I think it'll probably be quite tight, as you say. Um, it might it probably it it'll be a little bit like I'd imagine the Wales game from Euro 2016, yeah. where um, England just kind of edge it in the end. But you know, not, yeah, yeah, and that was I was in France watching that. We were in Paris in the fan park, and it went from being one of the most horrible days to one of the best in, in <laughs> such a short period of time it was just, it was horrible for, for ages and I was like oh god this is awful and then all of a sudden it was amazing and that's uh, yeah I suppose that's football isn't it really um, Owen that's that's kind of all my questions mate thank you so much for for coming on the podcast for us and speaking to us it's been uh, it's been a pleasure having you on absolute pleasure Dan. thanks for all your time thank you very much mate cheers huge thanks to Owen for taking part you can find out more about Owen Coyle Jr. on Twitter. His handle is at Owen Coyle Jr. JNR96. And you can also find out more about the England Amputee Football Association either by heading to their Twitter, which is at Amputee Football, or their website, which is theeafa.co.uk. So we'll be back again tomorrow and we'll be bringing you the final episode of the Football Without Everyone Is Nothing series as we speak to Chris Allen from the Ullet Road Church Rebels Football Club. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you again tomorrow.